I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Dr. Alan Hamilton. He's a neurosurgeon, a renowned horse trainer, and an equine-assisted therapist, among a long list of other very impressive credits. He's the author of Zen Mind, Zen Horse, and most recently, Lead With Your Heart, Lessons from a Life with Horses. To begin with, I just love this book. Oh, great. It's nice to be here. So delicious. It's just so full of these incredible gems of insight and wisdom. Well, I wish I could take credit for them, but it's really the horse <laughs> that teach him, not me. <laughs> well, you were receptive to receiving them. Yeah, I think they had to sort of hit me over the head with a two-by-four, but it took me, <laughs> you know, it's one of these processes that took, oh, you know, decades, and then you suddenly realize that they're really just such great teachers. They just teach a different style than we're used to. They sort of teach in a visceral, intuitive, and almost a metaphoric way. And they teach you physically, you know, that you can see what happens. And so it's a very different form of learning. And I think it takes a while till you're receptive. I think, you know, they're just standing around sort of, as they say, you know, when when the student is ready, the teacher appears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... 
So how do you attune yourself to that? I mean, you said it, it took you a long time to become receptive to that. How does one attune oneself to that completely different type of language? You know, I think it comes down to that bit by bit, you're able to start seeing the world through their eyes. You know, an analogy that I use is, you know, you go for a hike with Ansel Adams, you know, and you're bopping along and you stop at a, you know, a view and you go, oh, that's nice. Great. Okay. And you keep going, you know, and then Ansel Adams comes along and he's got this camera and this eye and all of a sudden this incredible composition is captured and you go, wait a minute, I looked at the same view, you know, but I didn't see that. And I think it's sort of the same thing with the horses is that just because I spent three years training them and, you know, a lifetime around them, I think what happens is you gradually begin to see the world through their eyes to the point that you're able to say, wait a minute, that's what this horse is trying to tell me, or, you know, that's what he's signaling. And, you know, very often you'll be able to see in their body language and in their posture and gestures that they go, oh, wait a minute, he doesn't understand yet what I'm trying to get across. So I have to be more deliberate and I've got to find an easy way for him to get there. But, you know, again, it's one of these things that, you know, as I said in the book, you're always brought back to yourself. Like any great self-inquiry or mindfulness you are brought back to yourself as the final barrier to progress. And, uh, you know, I think that's how just over time and being around them, uh, sometimes when I'm teaching people or training them, you know, when they first see it, they go, oh, man, that's like magic. And I go, no, if you were around teachers for (laughs) for 30 years, you'd pick up a few things too. And, you know, I said, it's just, there's nothing magical about it. It's just a matter of learning how to listen to them and then letting them teach you and then, you know, you're off and running. So then the training process, the quote-unquote training of horses, is much more than just training horses. Yeah, it's, how do I explain it? It's that you're immersed in it, and as you become immersed and you try to get deeper into the art of training horses, you are carried into a process of self-inquiry and an awareness. You know, the horse is living in a world in a very different fashion than we are as a prey animal. And so as you begin to see the world through the eyes of a prey animal, you start to be different. You know, you start to go, wait a minute, you recognize the predator when it comes out in you. While before you just couldn't recognize it, but now you sense it, and then you just become more and more aware. So, yeah, it's the training process. It's not to say it's accessible only if you train horses. It's not. You know, I, I think of you know, Peter Matheson's book, The Snow Leopard, okay? And, and, you know, I think about his insights into spirituality as he makes this pilgrimage to the Himalayas to look for the snow leopard. And, you know, the point is the journey is really the vehicle for getting to the spiritual insight. So I look at, you know, training horses was my vehicle to the insight. And I can show people when they're around horses, I can say, here, this is what this insight looks like when you are looking at the horse. So, you know, if I say something like, well, what does it mean to clear your mind? You know, it's, uh, that's a kind of one of those cliches. And, you know, I think that when I look at somebody clearing their mind as they learn to shut down that inner voice, I really can see the change in the horse. So I go, that's it, or that's not it, you know. And, you know, it's one of these physical representations 
of a state of mindfulness. So I can go, look, when the horse changes that posture, that's when your mind was clear. That's what it felt like. So it's like a huge feedback machine, and it's a very useful one. Wow, that's wonderful. So the horses can sense when you are present in the moment, and they can tell when you're lost in your head. Absolutely. And even something as small as if I'm training somebody with their horse in the round pen and I talk to them and I pull their attention away from the horse because I'm saying something to them, there's a change just because I've pulled their focus to me and away from the horse. For example, you can put somebody up on a horse and play a game, which is just have them ride around in the circle and you just ask them questions and you try and figure out from the change in the horse whether they're telling the truth or lying. Because just the difference between telling the truth and lying causes a change in the way your body, the animal perceives your body. It's strange things. Like I can go down the trail on a horse and look at a mule deer to my left and just say, oh, there's a mule deer, that's interesting. And then I can go down the trail and look to the left because there's a trail that I want to go down. And my horse will turn down that trail and I go, I'm not aware of any difference between the two. But the horse is aware of the difference between, oh, he's just looking to the left versus he's intending to the left. And, you know, I have to trust that because now over the years I've learned to, but I know the horse will be able to tell the difference between when I'm just looking left or I want to go left, even though I don't know how it does it. So I'm really curious about how and why a horse chooses to follow your lead based on that subtle sense of intention. Yeah, so I think what it is is that, first, this is a very quiet, gentle, natural way to talk and train a horse into a partnership. And so the horse says, this human being is trying to speak my language. This human being is connecting to me. This human being is with me and showing integrity with me. And because of that, I trust him. And he's a good leader because he's in control, he's in command, he communicates well, and he's compassionate. I think that there's another thing, and that is, as prey animals, horses are looking, they have a completely different reward system than we do. You know, we're after a buck, a sports car, a promotion, you know, a steak, uh, you know, a good wine, whatever you want to call it. We're after things. That's how predators work. Horses seek tranquility. That's their reward is tranquility. So if you think about the difference between watching a greyhound race and watching a thoroughbred race, you begin to see the difference. So in the thoroughbred race, they're in the starting gate. It's a claustrophobic environment. They're suddenly released. They all are trying to outrun each other because they're prey animals. And they go, whatever we're running from, I want to be in the front of it, not behind. Plus, they're getting their rear ends whacked. And then they get over the finish line, and it's all over. And the tension's all gone, and they, they get to rest. Now, the greyhounds, they have to have a mechanical rabbit to chase. They have to have something to go after. So the, the horses are looking, where's the piece at the end of the finish line? And the greyhounds are going, where's the rabbit? So when you're quiet, when you're a gentle, peaceful leader, the horse goes, being with that person is peaceful. Being with that person, they're looking out for me, and the environment is quiet around them. So that's one of the great rewards is when the animal trusts you like that, 
animals say, I want to stand by your side and I want to follow you. And that's how you get their loyalty. You can't control a 1,200-pound animal physically. You know, he has to be willing to go along with it because he can turn around and go, well, you know, I weigh 1,200 pounds and you, you can't even stop me if I decide. So the whole thing is a connection between the mind of the horse and the heart of the horse and the mind and the heart of the owner or the trainer or the handler. There's this mystique about horse and rider becoming one, and it sounds to me that both the rider and the horse are really wanting, really moving toward that level of relationship with each other, but coming at it perhaps in different ways. They are, and I think, you know, the other thing is the field's undergone a complete evolution because it used to be it was all dominance. It was all, how do I break the horse? How do I use my tools, my spurs, my bits, my whips, my lines? How do I use this to just break the horse's will so he'll do what I want? And, you know, over the last 50, 100 years, there always have been a handful of people who who's ha said maybe there's a different way, but they were completely drowned out until the last 50 or 75 years. And now everybody realizes, my goodness, I can have a willing partner. And yes, the goal is a unity. And if you think about it, it's a real yin and yang because you've got the uber predator of the planet, the most dangerous predator there is. And you have a prototypic prey animal that has virtually no defense other than running, you know, running away. And so, you know, it's just this amazing alliance. And in the midst of that unity, you begin to really be one with that horse and see the world through his eyes. And all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, that's what the prey animal's world is like. That's what the herd feels like. That's what communion with the herd feels like. And it's a very different experience than we're used to as predators. It seems kind of amazing that a horse could let itself go to that degree with such an uber-predator. You know, somebody asked me that, and I said, I, w I just want you to imagine it's Christmas morning, and your parents have a gift for you. You open up the present, and there's an 800-pound Bengal tiger. And they go, just make friends with them. You know, just just get along and, you know, be best buddies. And, and you're sitting on the couch with an 800-pound Bengal tiger going, my God, this, this creature could do something horrible to me in a moment's notice. And that is what the horse has managed to conquer. That is what the horse has also managed to forgive. We have the cruelty that we have imposed on horses over the centuries is almost unimaginable. You know, there's a saying, you know, which is the road to civilization is paved with the bones of horses. And, you know, I can tell you from when my grandfather was a cavalry officer and, and just told me the stories of what the battlefield felt like and looked like with, you know, these hundreds of maimed and wounded screaming horses. And you realize the price that they are willing to pay to partner up with human beings and put themselves into the hands of human beings is really astounding and, you know, almost, almost mystical. Is the horse's drive for release, or perhaps you could call it peace, that strong that it will literally walk through the heart of the most potentially dangerous situation? 
it's a question of the herd. For the horse, even when it's just one human being, that horse has made a herd. Okay, the, the truly solitary horse is a incredibly sad, panicked animal because he has no other... I mean, they, they live with the notion of, I am a member of a group. There's no such thing as, I'm an individual. I am a member of a herd. So the horse, even the horse that you see standing alone in the paddock when you drive by, that horse would tell you, I'm not alone, I have a herd, and I have a very ugly-looking two-legged horse that I'm friends with, that I belong to. I mean, we're a herd together. So the horse goes through those things because the horse is so devoted, so devoted to that herd. And so you can imagine a herd of wild mustangs that has to brave a torrent of creek, that swollen creek, or has to get through a forest fire. What happens is that leader of the herd is trying to find the absolute best way for all of the horses. That horse is not looking for the way out for just itself. That horse is saying, as the leader, I'm going to put myself at risk, and I will try and find a way out for all of us that is going to keep us all alive. And so the horse is looking at the same thing with human beings. I'm still puzzled how the horse can translate a dangerous human being into being a member of its own herd in that way. That, to me, it's counterintuitive to everything that we as human beings come to know about life. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting partnership. You know, there's an old Native American folktale, which I love because it sort of indicates how special this relationship is. And the story, I'll tell it very briefly. The story is that, that the, all the animals and the, the two-leggeds and the four-leggeds and the winged creatures are all a family. And they all speak the same language, and they live together in harmony. And then the two-legged human beings develop their own language, okay, as we did. We developed language skills. And we used that language to begin keeping secrets from the other animals and hunting them down. And eventually the animals can't take it anymore, and they go to see the creator, and they go, look, they're now using this secret language. They're not one with us anymore. They're using us for food, and we want to be separated. And so the creator says, okay, I'll take care of it, and the creator sends a giant earthquake which splits the earth apart, and all the animals are on one side, and the two-legged human beings are on the other side, and the earth just gapes open, and suddenly the human beings realize what they've done and that they'll be completely alone in the world, and they beg the animals for forgiveness as this chasm opens up between them. And at the very last minute, the dog and the horse jump across to stand with the humans. So, that, you know, here's a story that says, okay, there's this very special relationship. And we have bred the horse to be more and more and more and more of a partner over, you know, 50,000 years. We have made a great partnership with this species. And in some ways, the horse is always looking I know you're a predator, but I have to find out if I can trust you. And when the predator proves that they're trustworthy and shows their integrity, then the horse says, okay, now I'll follow you. But you have to earn that leadership every day. So it kind of sounds like just as human beings are, at least in more modern times, are seeking inner peace, they're seeking 
this state of quiet mind where they can be more directly in relationship to the world around them, that horses are actually seeking to create peace in a world that is inherently dangerous. I, it, it, you're absolutely right. Tony, I call them sometimes the peacemakers because their whole life revolves around, can I find a place where I'm safe, where I'm surrounded by my buddies, and as far as my eyes and ears and senses can sample, there's no threat. There's nothing that's going to disturb the peace and quiet that we are enjoying as a group. And I, I sometimes liken the relationship of the horse to the relationship that you have with family. It's hard for predators to understand this sense of communion that horses have, but to some extent, we will do things for the people we love that we would never do for any other members. You know, so you'll see self-sacrifice. You'll see, you know, I'll go without so my kids can have, you know, more go to a better school and all of that. So, you know, in some sense, that's an inkling of what happens because the horse says, if you're in my herd, I follow you and we face peril together and we look for peace together. And when you're training the horse, what you do is you take the horse to a slight level where you're applying energy with your body. So the horse is sort of looking, where am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to go up to the trot? Oh, if I go up to the trot, the energy comes off. If I go up to the lope, the energy comes off. If I come towards you and circle around you, the energy comes off. So you're always manipulating energy, and that's how they talk to each other. You know, when they look at each other and go, that's my flake of hay, leave it alone, they don't have a fight about it. They just exert a little bit of energy with their body language on the horse, and the subordinate horse backs away. But it's very peaceful. It's rare. It can happen. But I have to say 95% of the encounters between horses and horses and without physical violence and without harm. And 95% of the human conflicts with horses end in violence. Mm. I thought the that horse. Was, yeah. I thought that was very interesting how the horses are listening very carefully for the release in the human. Yes. As a sign that they are fulfilling or correctly hearing what it is that the human wants. That's their language, and the, and the release can be simply you're letting go of the tension in your body. The really big lesson that the horse is bringing to the human being is you are connected to the world around you. You may not be aware of it, but you're having an energetic conversation with all of the life around you. Once upon a time, you had that conversation. You were aware of the conversation. You've forgotten about it. But all of those abilities are still there, and the horse is saying, I can show you how connected you are. So, for example, if I can say to somebody, you slow your breath down and watch what happens to that horse 65 feet away from you. And they go, oh, my God, how that happened? And I said, because the energy that you're moving between you and that horse. Or I can say to somebody, go look at a pasture and pick out a horse that you want to work with. And one horse picks up their head, and all the other horses continue to graze. And I said, why did that horse pick up his head? And the rest didn't. He said, because that's the horse I picked out. And I said, how did he know that? And I said, because there was a change in the body language and in the energy coming from your body because you suddenly made your intention apparent to him. 
And I said, yes, it's 350 yards away, but, you know, the horse is trying to say, yes, your energy can exert itself that far away from you. So I think that's the real take-home message from Horses for Life in general, which is you're having an energetic conversation with the world around you, whether you hear it or not. And it's better if you become mindful and master control of your energy than if you just let it ricochet around like a pinball. I love that you talk so much about energy in this book and you return to it over and over again. And in our culture, we don't even acknowledge the existence of energy on that level, although it is very familiar in Eastern traditions, particularly in the martial arts traditions. And I'm really curious, how did you learn about energy in that way? You know, literally from the horses. When I say to people... You're at a cocktail party, and all of a sudden you feel like somebody's staring at you, and you whip around, and sure enough, somebody's staring at you. What made you turn around? What made you think that somebody was staring at you? What is it that bothers us if we're on the subway, for example, and somebody just stares fixedly at us, we break our gaze away? And the answer is it's that predatory energy that we register in a way that's almost subconscious. And so, you know, what, what the horse is saying every single moment is this conversation and energy matters. There is no such thing as a neutral moment. There's only we're learning or we're teaching. We're interacting or we're receiving. But we're, there's never a moment that you can't be aware of, that you shouldn't be aware of. And, you know, with the horse, it's so obvious because you have a 1,200-pound manifestation in front of you, which you don't normally have. So it's like life, everything in life is a conversation, is this continual, ongoing conversation, and it occurs on many different levels, even in neuroscience and in genetics. They talk about epigenetics, which is essentially a conversation between individuals and the surrounding environment. And it's a continually evolving process. And I just find this whole thing to be really wonderful and amazing. And again, I want to get back to working with energy and how, how we can develop that kind of subtle sense of energy. Because you write that being really conscious of energy helps us to be able to communicate better. Absolutely. You know, I think that the horse is only one way to, as you said, martial arts would be another way to arrive at the same end point. There's, you know, uh, people who do zazen meditation. That's another way to get to the same end point. What is it? It's mindfulness. It's awareness. It's being present. It's being receptive. It's using the least amount of energy to get the job done. It's understanding that there's a difference between your emotions and your energy. And the horse really teaches you to separate those. So, you know, you think about the discipline of a master in the martial arts, okay? And then you think about, well, what's the horse saying? The horse is saying, look, you're used to linking emotion and energy together. You're wired originally to do that. You know, you, you go, hey, get away from my parking space, or don't you look at my girl like that. So we put all this emotion into it. But the thing is, we, whenever we want more energy, we always jack up the emotion. But what the horse teaches you is you can separate those two. You can learn to separate it so that if I'm putting more energy into something, I don't have to put my emotion into it. 
I can be completely neutral about it. So I say to people, look, when I want my horse to go faster, I have to put energy on that horse to make him go faster. And then when he gets there, I release him. Okay, so I said, but I'm not mad at him because he isn't getting up to that speed. I'm just using the energy to get the job done. And in fact, it confuses the horse if you start to get mad. You know, if you start going, come on, you son of a gun, get going, get going. And then the horse goes, what's the matter? What? How come the energy changed like that and took on that emotional, darker quality? So the horses say, look, just leave that stuff out. I don't need it. It doesn't work. It confuses me. It alarms me. So just use that energy in a completely neutral way and save it. Be aware of when you're putting emotion and energy together and save it for when you intend it to happen, not just it's a reflex, it's a reaction, there's nothing I can do about it. The horse is saying, yes, there is, you can master that. And it's a very useful technique. You know, when somebody says something and you start to feel defensive and you go, no, 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 no. I don't have to respond emotionally, I just need to respond energetically to get the job done. That in itself is an incredibly powerful thing to learn. Oh, I mean, look, I'm just a pilgrim. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All, here, yeah. you know. But I think, I think every single time the horse is going, uh, hey, Alan, there's a lot more to work on here. And I think, you know, every time you have that, uh, we have time for a quick story. Absol- quick? Absolutely. Please. So it's one example that I, I was stuck in Denver on a, a ski trip. I was coming back and it was snowing like crazy and none of the flights were coming out. And everybody's flight was canceled. So you know how they have these desks where you have to line up and, you know, get your change and your flights and all of that. Talk about energy. When you walk into those areas, it's like the biggest hurricane of negative energy that you can imagine. You know, it's boiling over. And so the line sneaking through and there's this, you know, kind of short, bald guy in his 50s who gets up to the desk. And he says, you know, I got to get to Detroit tonight. And, uh, you know, the young lady behind the counter says, well, I'm sorry. All those flights are canceled. And he goes, you know, listen, you dumb cow. I told you I have to get to Detroit. And, you know, you don't know what you're doing. So why don't you get a supervisor? You know, it just got escalated, escalated, escalated. And I'm sure he's still in that airport. (laughs) (laughs) You know, nobody's let him out. But about, about three or four people back, there was a woman, I guess, a little bit older, and she got to the front desk and she said, uh, I have to get to Chicago. And the young lady said, no, there's no flights out there. She says, well, I have to get to Chicago because it's my daughter's wedding. And she says, ma'am, I wish I could help you, there, but there are no flights out. And she goes, I want you to think of your mom and what it would mean to you if your mom wasn't at your wedding. And she goes, ma'am, and she goes, I'm talking about your wedding and your mother. The attendant looks at her and says, let me see if I can get you on a bus. <laughs> so, you know, and I looked at that and I watched her just increase the energy, you know, and I thought to myself, there it is. She's just slightly increasing the energy until she gets the job done. But there's no emotional assault. It's just, I want you to think of your mom, you know, look at your mom and your wedding. And it just, she just kept upping the ante just a little bit until she got the results she wanted. And I always think of that example of the first one is, he couldn't separate his emotion from his energy, and the second one was was perfect mastery of, you know, this, I'm going to ask you nice, I'm going to request, I'm going to demand, but I'm going to promise you, you're going to want to do what I ask. <laughs> you know, and so I think that lesson, you know, I try to apply that in my life all the time at work or, you know, with my family, which is I don't want to get emotional. I just want to listen. I want to be receptive and I want to put 
the amount of energy that I really intend into it, but without getting emotionally carried away. Yeah, what a beautiful example. Mm. I love that because most of us, at least at some time in our lives, we use our emotional reactions like a blunt instrument. I completely agree with you, Tony. That's, I think we abuse our emotions because we use them like a blunt instrument. And we don't think about, we're not mindful of, do I really want to invest my emotion in this? Because when we're mindful about it, I think what happens is we go, that's a lot of negative emotion. I'm not going to invest in that. I'm not going to put it in there. I just need the energy. I don't need the bad feelings or anything else. And at the same time, there may be times where you go, I want my love to suffuse this energy that I'm putting out. And I talk about that with the horse, which is, I have this saying in my barn, which is, ask for a lot, settle for less, and reward abundantly. And it's just this notion of, I want the horse to understand how much I love him, how much I appreciate what he's trying to do for me, how willing he is to try. And, you know, that's a lesson I learned from horses, which is, you know, I wasn't rewarding and recognizing and showing affection enough. And, you know, with a horse, it's pause, pet, breathe. But, you know, the same thing in a metaphorical way should be happening in our lives. You talk a lot about intention, and you also have this term, impeccable intention. So Mm -hmm. what you just brought up strikes me as being a core intention that you have with your horses. I think the way I kind of think of intention is we we have this energy that the horse is sort of turning us on to, saying, you know, hey, you're having all this energy around you and you're, you know, emanating from you and receiving it from elsewhere. Then the horse says, bring it to a focus. So that's attention, okay? And then you say, well, what do I want to do with this energy? And then you say to yourself, I want that horse to rise up, collect himself, rise up, and then carry himself over that jump easily. Okay, so in my mind's eye, I can see it, and I give my energy to that horse to launch him. But the thing is that when it's perfect, when your intention is perfect, you can see that it's going to happen before it happens. So an example that might be more accessible to people would be, think of Michael Jordan. He drops back for a three-pointer, okay? When the ball leaves his hand, you know it's going to go through the net, swoosh, right through the net. That the, his, his intention is impeccable in that it's already as if this is predetermined it will happen because his energy has shaped it so it will happen. And with the horse, you can physically see intention. And, you know, I have a, a little clip on YouTube where you can see a young lady And when she first starts walking around with a horse, she's very absent-minded, and the horse is absent-minded. And then I come out, and I say to her something like, oh, you're with the stallion, so be a little careful. And you can see her get a little nervous, and you can see the stallion's body language changes, and he starts to move up and almost pushes her aside because he says, you're scared. You don't know where you're going. And then later, she gets the hang of it, and she's really walking off and looking where she wants to go, and you see that stallion just following her completely relaxed from behind. And the reason the horse's body changes is because her intention changes each time she gets it. You know, so at first she's she's distracted, and so he goes, okay, your energy's all distracted. That's what it feels like. But as she looks where she wants to go and she focuses on where she's headed, then the horse just softens and just follows her 
with a very loose lead. And so, you know, the horse is physically giving you a translation of what intention looks like. So, it sounds like you're saying that intention is focused energy. It's focused energy. I am, absolutely. So, attention is focused energy. Intention is focused energy with a distinct goal that can be visualized. Okay, it's focused. Now, why does it have to be impeccable? Well... It can't be contaminated by the desire to see it happen. I don't know if this makes any sense, but let's say, let's go back to this example. I want my horse to go over the jump. But I want my horse to go over the jump because I want to win a ribbon, okay? And now I'm pushing the horse with that goal. Now my intention is driven not by what the horse does, but what I want out of the horse, okay? And so my intention is no longer impeccable because if it was impeccable, I go, who cares if he does the jump perfectly? What I care is that he feels my intention and we're working on it, okay? And the times that I've gotten hurt by horse is when I lost my integrity and I wanted something out of the horse. You know, I was doing a clinic in front of people, and I wanted the horse to show, you know, hey, he's going to do this sort of thing, or I wanted him to prove something to people. And instead of saying, wait a minute, that's my horse. I don't care. I got 20 years with that horse. Who cares if he's going to do it today? I care whether or not he's comfortable trying, but if he doesn't do it, I don't care. And there's this point that you have to let go so that your intention is perfect. And then things happen. Then the horse goes, okay, you're only in this for the partnership of trying to get this done, not because you have a goal or an agenda, because that really poisons the waters completely. Mm, Yeah, I totally get that. And horses pick that up very, very clearly. And even we can sense that in people, although that sensing can be very clouded by our own agendas. Well, what is integrity and what's distrust? You know, and I think about it a lot because as a brain surgeon, you know, I am always looking for, you know, one of the things people complain about the most is that they, their doctors really don't seem to be present for them. So when we look at videotapes of doctors, you know, one of the things we'll see is that they're looking down at their iPads. So you go, well, your mouth is saying, I care about you and I'm here to take care of you. But your body language is saying, I have to go through this data, and I'm much more interested in the data than I am in you. And so, you know, the horse is the same way. He's going, wait a minute, your body is saying something different. I can't trust your body anymore because now your body has changed, your intention has changed by your agenda. It's the same thing. The horse says, wait a minute, you're no longer showing integrity with me. You're much more interested in whether the people in the stands, in the bleachers, are going to be impressed by what you're showing them versus what we're doing together. You know, and that suddenly the horse becomes an object. And so those things matter, and I think they matter to us in our lives when we sense that people want something out of us and they're after something, we sort of have an inherent, uh-oh, that person's agenda has now poisoned the relationship. Yeah, and the title of your book is Lead From Your Heart. And you're right, education is about leading from the heart, connecting with your student, and it's a very spiritual thing. And my sense is that's a very embodied experience and that that's what the horse is looking for, that you are present and as you are using the term, 
being impeccable in that way. You know, I learned so many things about parenting from horses. I know sometimes it sounds naive, but horses are really looking, can you listen to me? Are you listening to what my body's trying to tell you? And so many times when my kids were growing up, particularly when they were teenagers, we'd be having these conversations, and I'd be waiting for them to take a breath so I could break into the conversation and tell them what my opinion was. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so I had this agenda. And, you know, bit by bit, over time, I wish I had learned it a lot earlier, I've learned to just clear my mind and be completely receptive to what they're saying. Not have an agenda, not want to interrupt, not to have my opinion known, but to be actively listening, to lend my energy to the conversation. And, you know, that's, again, one of the horse's great teachings is be present without an agenda. And as you say, you know, then you'll have impeccable intention. Wow. It sounds like horses are like the greatest possible spiritual teacher that we could be looking for. To me, I always go, look, when you look at a herd of horses, I want you to see a herd of Buddhist monks in their orange saffron robes and think, they're waiting to teach me. They're waiting to teach me the great lessons that I can learn from them. And the reason that we can learn from them is because, you know, that if you want to be different, you have to see different. And, you know, the horse is saying, look at the world through my eyes. Look at what a prey animal, a herd animal is seeing. And what the herd animal is saying is, might is not right. The individual is not all that counts. There is more to connect to than you know. And in that connection, you will find communion and you will be seeking tranquility together. That's what the horse brings. I, I sometimes say to people, this is the vehicle that the Creator gave me to find some answers and, and to make queries. And, you know, I think, you know, sometimes I say they're like divine gifts. They're like divine messengers saying, you can find the way to connect. And that's what spirituality is ultimately, is, you know, in the broadest sense of the word, it's this desire to connect to something bigger than yourself. And the horse is constantly saying, you can connect to everything if you want to, if you train yourself to, if you clear your mind and you allow your heart to connect without wanting to extract things, without being ambitious, without saying, I want to take advantage of things. And then you think about, well, what's that message mean in a world today when we look at the disparities of, you know, herds that have nothing and our herd that has hoarded everything, you know, and you sort of go, well, a horse's message is it's a herd and you need to take care of each other. And leadership is showing that you put yourself at risk and you put the good of the herd before your own. And so, you know, I think there's almost a broader message, which is look at what we're doing to the world, to the resources, to the natural environment of the world around us. And the horse is going, it will affect the entire herd. You need to change your priorities because this isn't about being a predator. Being a predator, we were wildly successful as a species, but we're running out of that strategy. That strategy is starting to fail us. And so, you know, the horse is sort of saying, look, there can be another chapter, which is the chapter of communion, the chapter of the herd of the people of a global community, and try and see the world through the eyes of the peacemakers. 
that's incredibly profound. And you actually end the book on that note that there's still time for a predator to turn to the herd. You know, I always think when I look at the news, when I look at what's happening in Aleppo, when I look at what's happening to African-American men, you know, when I look at all of these issues of strife, I always am thinking in the back of my mind, you know, there's the horse saying it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. You're making a predatory choice, and you can make other choices. Where, again, might is not right. Acquiring and being materialistic and possessive and ambitious is not the only answer to the problems of the world. And you also write that we have the ability to use our creative imagination to move beyond instinctual reactivity and to create new solutions. And you give a few different styles of solutions that we can look for, like, for example, 180-degree solutions. What are 180-degree solutions, and how can we work with things like that that literally are asking us to go completely against our nature, in a sense? So let me give you first an example from the horse world. Then I'll give you what I think is the analogy, the metaphor that works for us as human beings. So a lot of times people have a lot of trouble getting their horses into trailers, okay? And and almost always it's going to happen when you really need to get your horse somewhere. They sort of always pick that moment to to say, okay, I'm not getting in the trailer. So, you know, people will bring you their horse as a trainer, and they'll say, well, can you train my horse to get in the trailer? And you go, okay, yeah, leave the horse with me, and, you know, when you're done, pick him up and pay me for it, and it'll be all fixed. And people wonder, well, how did you train the horse to get in the trailer? Well, the answer is I didn't train the horse to get in the trailer. I trained the horse to get out of the trailer. Okay, so so what I did is I said to the horse, when you put your first foot on the ramp to that trailer, and then I back him out. And then I said, okay, put your second foot on that ramp to the trailer, and I back him out. Third foot, back him out. First foot, back him out. Four feet, back him out. Third foot, back him out. Again, do this endlessly until the horse goes, look, I got it. I've got it. What's at the end of that trailer? I'm, I'm, okay. I'm comfortable with it. And you, all you've been doing is telling him all the time, go back out of the trailer, back out of the trailer, back out of the trailer. So he goes, I know how to back out of the trailer. Just let's go to the end here. And so you've turned the problem around. People say, oh, you have to train the horse to get in the trailer. The answer is no. Train the horse to get out of the trailer. You know, you're constantly reinforcing with the horse, there's a way out. There's always a way out. There's an exit. You know, you don't have to worry about being closed up in this box. So here's the analogy of turning the question over. And and this happens to us, I think, all of us, which is we get good at certain things. We get really, really good at certain things, and we get successful because of certain things. But those abilities become one of our greatest liabilities because we're constantly trying to play to our strengths, so we're not willing to try things where we might fail, where we're weak. So you you sort of have to turn it around and go, only playing to my strength is a great weakness, so I'm going to try things that I'm weak at to get strong. So it's, again, it's a 180-degree solution. It's you flip the whole question on its head. We had a design issue in a new building we're building for the medical school where we wanted the public to be invited in. 
So we said, well, we've got this simulation training facility. We can't just have the public coming in. So I said, well, what if we came out? <laughs> you know, what if we came out? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, what if the whole building that we're doing the training in is is transparent? It's got glass so the public can walk around at will, almost like in an aquarium, and be looking at what the doctors and nurses and pharmacists are doing to train in healthcare so they can see healthcare in the making, as it were. And so, again, it was one of these solutions where you go, just turn the problem upside down, just 180-degree solution. Hmm. Yeah, in parenting, there's this concept of using reverse psychology on children. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways, you know, it's like I was talking to my brother who was having a lot of problems with one of his kids doing homework. So he was spending tremendous emotion and tremendous energy, you know, saying, don't forget you got this assignment. Don't forget you have that assignment. Don't forget, you know, when is your homework done? Let me see this, you know, blah, blah, blah. So there's all this energy and emotion. And I'm kind of going, what if you just let go? You go, what? I said, what if you just let go? I mean, it's her homework. You know, so what if you just let go and say, hey, you know, I'm not going to worry about your homework. You know, it's going to take care of itself, and, you know, you're going to do whatever you want to do. And, and, you know, I, I said, you're holding on so tight to the homework, just do the opposite. If you want the homework to get done, let go of it. And, you know, I've had the same situation with the horse where I got lost. We were in a storm. We couldn't see anything. And we were trying to pick our way through these rocks, and I can't even see where we're supposed to go anymore and I'm going my goodness gracious we're in a bad fix here and I just got this overwhelming signal to just let go of the reins just let go and I kept getting this message over and over and over just let go so I finally you know I just laid the reins on the horse's neck and I held on to the horn of the saddle and the horse just picked his way down in this storm and about 45 minutes later, I was completely lost. About 45 minutes, an hour later, I hear clunk, clunk, clunk on this wooden bridge. And I realize we're right by the parking lot. That the horses somehow guided me all the way down this mountain. And we're right at the parking lot. This is the bridge that leads onto the trail from the parking lot. You know, I just had to surrender. And, you know, here it was. I, I got to my goal by letting go. Another one of those counterintuitive lessons of life. Mm-hmm. And ones that the horses are always, always trying to show you. Like you, you say, well, I want to train the horse to do this, 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 and you're kind of obsessed with it. And the horse goes, look, if you want to get this done in a hurry, it's going to take a year. <laughs> if you give yourself a year to get this done, it'll get done in a hurry. <laughs> You know, you have to really be willing to say, I don't care if it happens today, tomorrow, or eight months from now. We'll just work on it. And then when you relax like that and let go, the horse goes, God, we got rid of that agenda. Now we can really get to work. And it happens very smoothly. Mm. So, again, you're reinforcing this notion that the horse really is an incredibly insightful teacher for each of us on a very individual level. To me, it's almost like a sacred experience. In fact, one time my mom was always nagging me to go to church and everything, and I, I was out and I was working a horse all morning, and my mom says, well, why aren't you coming to church? And I said, well, I've already been. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I've had my, my sacred experience here in the round pen. 
you know, learning more divine lessons and, uh, and insight into how to be a better person. And sort of on the flip side of this, in a way, you have a story that you tell in the book about your buckskin filly, Pepper, mm-hmm. of her issue with being tied up to a rail or a hitching post and how you changed your usual response in order to help her change her response. Well, Pepper was, as you can see from the name, she was kind of fiery and peppery. That's how she got her name. And she was a cutting horse. So she's a very, very fast athletic horse. And she had this thing that she would every once in a while just pull back when she was tied to the hitching post or the rail and she'd panic. You know, she'd just absolutely panic. And it was very dangerous. It was very dangerous for everybody around her, and it was very dangerous for her because every once in a while she'd flip herself over or pull a gate loose or a hitching post loose, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm trying to figure out, well, how do I solve this problem? And I guess, you know, I came up with a 180-degree solution, which is don't tire at all. Okay, so... So I started looking for mechanisms, all sorts of things where I could have the horse attached to rail without tying them up. So there's a thing called an Aussie ring, which came from Australia, where you can clip the horse's lead on, but when the horse pulls back, the lead just pulls through the clip and out they go. Or I'd wrap the lead around the rail, but I'd never tie it. So what would happen is, every once in a while, this moment of panic would grab her again, and she'd pull back, and there'd be nothing to pull back against. So, you know, gradually she goes, well, wait a minute, there's no panic here. Every time I, if I have to, if I, there's nothing to pull back against. So you just go back and say, you're okay, girl, and put her back on the rail. And I learned that, you know, one of the things, these are prey animals. They panic if they can't move their feet, if they feel like they can't get away. And so, you know, I began to realize, hey, the safest thing is if I don't tie And that was a big change for me. In my first book of horses, I go on and on about how to tie the horse to the rail and everything. But, you know, since then, I've I stopped tying them to the rail. I've learned, hey, the safest thing is if that horse needs to pull back, that he can suddenly feel that lead rope giving so he knows he has an escape. He knows he can move his feet. And so Pepper, you know, here comes this incredible teacher cutting horse. And, you know, her lesson is if you want me to feel comfortable being tied to the rail, don't tie me to the rail. (laughs) (laughs) So near the end of the book, you have an essay titled, Love is Never the Problem. So what have horses taught you about love? Oh, my. One, not to hold back. You know, sometimes people worry about, oh, I don't want to, you know, interrupt the lesson to show the horse affection. And one of the things is, you know, this creature is yearning for confirmation of the partnership, okay? And so, you know, you have to understand, love doesn't interfere with anything. Love isn't going to get, you know, distract the horse or pull a horse off task. In fact, the point is, the more that horse understands that you love him, the more the horse is going to try. And the more the horse understands that you have his interests at heart. And it's the same thing with the people we love. You know, we have to remind ourselves we don't show our affection enough. We don't share our affection enough. You can never show too much love. And it won't interfere. You know, and I think the the horse's message is love is the cement that binds us together 
into a communion, into a partnership. And don't be sparing about it. Hmm. Well, I have loved this conversation. This has been totally delightful. <laughs> Likewise for me, Tony. I love this stuff and I love pondering it. And there's always more to extract out of it. Mm, I could have talked for a long time more. What's the latest cutting edge of what you're learning from horses right now? Right now, what I'm, I've been looking at is I'm trying to accelerate my ability to take a horse that I've never met before and really trying to, to size up the horse's problems very quickly and make it very clear to the horse that I'm there to help with the problems. I'm not going to be part of the problem. And then tomorrow, when I've been talking about the next problem, I'm working with a group of students from the law school and the business school on the art of negotiating. And we are doing it with horses because, believe me, when you have a 1,200-pound partner and you have a deal breaker, you're going to learn about it. And you're going to have to learn how to compromise. So, you know, right now I'm thinking about compromise and I'm thinking about how do I get into the horse's mind as quickly as possible to make it clear to them I'm not there to be a predator, I'm there to be a partner, and I'm there to help them with the problems, not make them worse. Well, both of those sound fascinating, and I look forward to hearing more about all of this. Well, Tony, I can't thank you enough. That was Dr. Alan Hamilton. He's a neurosurgeon, a renowned horse trainer, and an equine-assisted therapist, among a long list of other very impressive credits. He's the author of Zen Mind, Zen Horse, and most recently, Lead With Your Heart, Lessons from a Life with Horses. In the 
the desert on a horse with no name It felt good to be out of the rain In the desert, you can't remember your name Cause there ain't no one for to give you no pain Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
free And what must be Must be And that is all True love can make a blade of grass Stand up straight and tall In harmony With a cosmic sea True love needs no company It can cure the soul It can make it whole If dogs run free call this the act of mating, but there are several other very important differences between human beings and animals that you should know about.
so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Do it again now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Do it now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Do it again now. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. out there. <laughs> if not for sex, much of what is flamboyant and beautiful in nature would not exist. Plants would not bloom, birds would not sing, hearts would not beat so fast. But ask an assortment of creatures, what is sex? And they'll give you different answers. This is Angel. This is Angel. We are the Android Sisters. Is there anything you believe you believe so strongly? You can't take criticism? No, there isn't. Don't, Don't kid me. What are all these sacred cows we see floating around you? Don't tell me. You don't take them seriously. Don't kid me. Kid me. And what have your sacred cows done for you lately? Have they given any milk? Have they given any butter? What are they doing? Just floating in the air. Mooing? Do you feed your sacred cows? They certainly are. Big and fat. Look at the way they waddle about. Look at the way they plop on things. Look at the way they fill up with gas and float about. Look at the way they poop on you. But you don't see it. Do you? Don't kid me. Don't kid me. Tell me. Many sacred cows do you see in this picture? Look closely. How many? You don't see any, do, do you? you? 
Is it because they are hidden? Is it because they are invisible? Is it because you don't believe in sacred cows? Don't kid me. Don't kid me. There's one. Did you see that? You didn't. Well, I'm afraid there is nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing we can do for you. Don't kid me. Hello, I'm Jacques Couteau, here on Whale Oil's platform number 75, almost a mile off the coast of Northern California. From here, the sea looks dead and lifeless, but beneath the ancient oil that covers its surface, it teems with new children, the offspring of the recent marriage of petroleum and Mother Nature. Let's take a look. Here in the shadow with the great support pylons, we see thousands of little silvery pop-top fish spinning playfully in the currents. And here comes a family of broken brown beer bottle fish, as usual, traveling in packs of six. They are cute, but look out for those jagged teeth. They can slit your foot off. So remember, the next time you yell at the silent sea and she does not answer, it is not necessarily a sign that her herring has been impaled. Here at Whale Oil, we salute men like Jack Couteau. Not Jack Couteau, but men like him. Whale Oil, turning yesterday into tomorrow, today.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>